Hello, this is Comeback. This is Connor. This is episode 148. My guest today is Nicole Mooring. Nicole is initially from Ohio, and she's going to talk to me today about Voices of Change 2018, which she is the founder of. This is a nonprofit organization with a mis mission to reduce the risk of sexual abuse for children with disabilities. Nicole's daughter and son, who is autistic, were both victims of sexual abuse and assault. Nicole witnessed the differences in the justice system of how her daughter was believed and treated well, and her son was not. BOC was founded to educate families so no other family would ever feel as bad as Nicole and her family did during this ordeal. Nicole is a first-time author of Finding Myself, Overcoming Abuse, Heartache and Loss, Then Finding True Love, and is currently writing her second book, Finding My Voice. She serves on the Ohio Attorney General Committee for Crime Victims with Disabilities. In 2021, Nicole received the Crucial Point Award, an annual award given to people and organizations that delve beyond the surface of sex crimes to focus on overlooked niches of survivorship. Nicole is working with legislators to change current and past new laws to enforce stronger policies and best practices for child abuse reporting and how cases are being processed. Nicole has over 25 years of experience in management in corporate, nonprofit, and healthcare environments. I'm very excited for today's conversation. Nicole, welcome to come back. How are you this morning? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, Nicole, the question that I usually like to ask the guest initially is, do you mind telling me, you know, just as a brief overview about your background, whereabouts are you from and what was life like growing up, I suppose? Sure. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned in my bio, I, I live in Ohio um, and I was actually born in Kentucky um, and moved to Ohio when I was, I think, about three. Um, and, you know, grew up, I am uh, grew up with, you know, single family home. I'm an only child. Um, had a great life. Um, my mom and I are extremely close. Um, you know, really, um, really had no no complaints out of childhood. I had a great childhood uh, growing up. And um, when I um, got married the first time, um, as my book, and we'll talk later about, um, I was um, the unfortunate victim of domestic abuse and uh, was in that relationship for over 12 years. And um, well, you know, again, we'll talk more about that later, but, um, you know, just had that experience and then, you know, with two children now and now finally finding the love of my life and happily married and founder of this nonprofit or organization. Yeah, okay. And what I do want to do then is really delve into, in quite some detail, the work that you do with Voices of Change. Now, to do that, let me go to you know, the start of it, if I may. Um, I am aware of the sensitivity of the topic, but um, as I believe from your bio, you, both of your children were abused and assaulted. Now, I am aware of the difficulties here, but would you mind telling me, once you found out what happened to them, what was your initial reaction? Sure, um, you know, as a mom, you know, your worst, you know, you have a few, things in your head, you know, when you become a first time mom and, you know, your ch child being 
abused in any form is always, you know, one of them. And I will be honest, I was completely naive to the fact that when my son was diagnosed, he has a, a syndrome called fragile X syndrome, which is a, a genetic, genetic disorder, as well as the diagnosis of autism as well. And when he was diagnosed, I honestly thought that he was exempt from any kind of abuse. I didn't realize the, the relevance and the prevalence that the disabled um, population had um, over a neurotypical child or a child without a disability. Um, children with disabilities are 2.9 times more likely to be victims of abuse. And I had no idea. Um, so that being said, you know, I really felt that it would never happen to him. Um, and that was just my own ignorance, I guess, because no, you know, we both know nobody talks about this issue. It's so taboo. Um, and it needs to be talked about. Um, so, you know, that being said, even though I had that mindset, if you will, I also, from a very young age, my daughter's older and she is neurotypical. She's two and a half years older than my son. And I had always had the stranger danger and the nobody touch you, touches you where a bathing suit goes, um, you know, except for your pediatrician or, um, you know, mommy or daddy. And um, so we had always had those conversations. Um, but again, you know, you always think it's never going to happen to your child. And, you know, I think as parents and as just society, we all think that it's going to be someone we don't know. And we, you know, place this stranger danger in our heads. And, you know, we have that preconceived notion and it actually is extremely false. You know, uh, over 90% of the time, it's somebody, you know, um, which is really disturbing statistics. Um, so when my son disclosed, he was, it was in 2016. So he was 10 at the time. Um, and, you know, he, you know, I was just giving him his basic, you know, nobody should touch you or bathing suit goes speech. And he then disclosed to me what had happened. And I just got a pit in my stomach. I, and I knew I believed him right away. There was no questioning him. Um, kids, you know, on the spectrum or kids with disabilities, they don't know how to lie. Um, and, the, you know, just especially with the nature of the topic anyway. Um, so there was no doubt in my mind to even question or not to believe him. I, I knew my heart of hearts told me that unfortunately this was true and I needed to act on it, but I didn't know what to do because, you know, there is no handbook when you're given a disability or when your child's given a disability, there's nothing about the, you know, relevance of this and how much this is happening and that it's somebody, you know, you know, more than likely somebody, you know, so I didn't know what to do. You know, I frozen time. Um, I knew I had to be strong for him, although I wanted to fall apart. Um, so at that point in time, um, their dad and I were divorced at this point and my daughter was seeing a psychologist and all I knew, you know, the, the right thing to do was I called her and I asked her what to do because I didn't know what else to do, but I knew I had to tell somebody, I knew I had to get my son help. 
Um, but I just didn't know what that looked like. So um, I called her and unbeknownst to me, she was a mandate reporter, which, you know, just means that she has to report it to the local authorities, you know, so they can start the process of, you know, going through the motions to see if the claim is substantiated or unsubstantiated and, you know, if there could be a case. Um, so she, you know, we went through the motions and everything and, um, you know, he had a forensic interview and in a forensic interview, um, for those listening that don't know, you know, the child's interviewed by someone who's been specially trained and they ask the child questions and, you know, just about the incident, you know, the alleged incident, if you will. And in the interview, a child's always asked this one question, do you know the difference between a truth and a lie? Well, any child with a disability knows the answer to that, but they don't know how to answer that format. So when my, my son was asked that question, his answer was no. And that essentially threw the case out and that made it unsubstantiated, which is really sickening when you think about it. I mean, I still, I talk about it right now and my heart just bleeds. I mean, how somebody could just throw a case out with that simple answer when he's given you these graphic details of being molested is so disturbing to me. Um, yeah. So I continued to fight after that. I wasn't going to give up. I knew he wasn't lying. Um, at that point, he still was able to see the alleged perpetrator. Um, and I say alleged because I have to, because there was no conviction. Um, and, you know, I had no rights. Um, I, there was nothing I could do. It was someone we knew. And um, so fast forward, probably about nine months later, um, he starts having, my son, Evan, he starts having these horrific meltdowns, um, tantrums, if you will, unlike anything you know, you've ever experienced, you know, it wasn't, I'm being a brat, I'm being, a, you know, a preteen, not getting my way. It was something's wrong. I'm trying to tell you something. So I started taking, you know, journaling, I started taking notes, I started carding everything, you know, date of the incident, what was going on, you know, what happened prior to who was he with? What did he eat? Did he have a specific kind of clothing on anything that I could chart to try and determine was there a trigger for these incidences? I'm coming up empty, can't figure this out. I'm taking them to doctor after doctor after doctor, coming up empty still. You know, nothing, nobody can figure this out why these outbursts are, are what they are. And they would last anywhere from a few minutes to a few hours. Um, so we end up, that starts in June of 2017. And they last till July of 2018. So you can imagine what our life was like. It was just horrific. Um, and you could see he wasn't, when he was going through this, you could see it wasn't him. I mean, he didn't mean it. He wasn't trying to, he was definitely trying to express something, but what was that? And he couldn't communicate. I mean, he is verbal, but he couldn't you know, articulate what it was he was trying to tell us. He, he was afraid of something, but he couldn't tell us. At this point, he hadn't seen the perpetrator uh, anymore as these are going on. Um, and, you know, I'm not thinking anything else had happened. Um, so in June of 18, 
my husband and my daughter and my son and I were at a graduation party and, um, my daughter, we came home that night and my daughter disclosed that she was sexually assaulted at the party. Now at this point she was 15 and a half. Um, the boy was over 18. Um, someone we knew someone different was not the same perpetrator. And, I just thought, you know what, I'll be darned. I'm, I'm not, somebody else isn't getting away with this. You know, now both my kids are national statistics. I am not, I'm not letting somebody else walk free. Like all, no, forget it. So I reported it. Um, they started the process. Um, the way the justice system treated my daughter versus the way they treated my son was entirely different. Um, and what, when I say that, I mean, you know, from the, the time my, my call was made to the end of it uh, with the judge, every person involved in her case cared about her, cared about what she experienced, what she went through, psychologically, physically, mentally, um, emotionally. They cared about what the outcome was. They wanted to know what she wanted to see as an outcome. They involved her in every step of the way. Um, they believed her most importantly, they believed her. Um, and so her case was substantiated and they, um, did prosecute and he received jail time. He re he is on the registry. There's a national registry in um, the States and he is on the registry for 15 years. Um, which means he has to report you know, I, I'm not exactly sure of everything for his case. I don't know if it's case by case, but, you know, if he goes for a job, you know, and they do the background check, you know, that comes up, um, you know, as a sexual predator, um, you know, he get community service, mental health assessment. I mean, he got what he deserved for what he did to my daughter. Um, so as all this is unfolding and we're going through the court proceedings and whatnot, my son disclosed discloses for the second time that um, in addition to being molested, he also was asked to undress and there was pictures taken, naked pictures taken of him and they were put on the internet. Um, and this was his same perpetrator from the first time. And you can imagine how I felt. Um, and I called the social worker and I reported it. And you know, she asked me, what do you want me to do? And I said, what, what do you think I want you to do? You know, um, put them behind bars, <laughs> you know, uh, it's really a dumb question. So, um, they, you know, they started the process again, this time it was substantiated and in Ohio. And I, I can only speak to Ohio cause I don't know how it works in other States, but in Ohio, when a case is reported and then a case is completed, um, Child Protective Services has 30 days to close out a case. And once they close out a case, they have to notify the alleged perpetrator of the allegations. And they do this by sending a letter to the alleged perpetrator. So, they sent the letter to the alleged perpetrator. And with that, the perpetrator has the right to call and find out what the allegations were and which this person did. And with that, um, and knowing that, you know, it was child pornography and um, 
you know, whatnot. Um, he um, ended up hiring a criminal attorney and disposed of all his equipment. So I fought from August of 2018 to April of 2019 to get a search warrant. That shouldn't be. That was uncalled for. I mean, there should that that should have never happened. I mean, that should have been executed immediately. That letter should have never been generated. That should have been done immediately, knowing it's child pornography um, and child exploitation. I mean, my son's pictures are out there somewhere still to this day. You know, we're talking two and a half, three years later. And um, so he they executed the search warrant in April of 2019. And well, as you can imagine, they didn't find anything because he was tipped off. So to this day, my son has never received justice. Um, they didn't care. They never prosecuted um, because they said they had enough to indict, but not to prove beyond reasonable doubt. And they shut the case down. So he's walking scot-free. Lord knows how many other kids I'm sure this has been done to. Um, my daughter received justice. My daughter was treated with all fairness, with dignity, with respect. And my son was, you know, disrespected, not treated with dignity um, and discriminated against. Yeah. So it's been a long road. Yeah, I see. And with that then, is that the point where you decided to start Voices of Change? And if so, would you mind telling me more about Voices of Change? Yes. So it was during all that, you know, my daughter, Macy, and I started really having conversations. And, you know, she started seeing, you know, being so young um, at that point, you know, she was 16, 16 and a half at that point. And, you know, she started saying, you know, Mom, why are they treating me so different than Evan? You know, I mean, she was glad how she was being treated, but very sad to see how her brother was being treated. And, you know, so we started having these, you know, conversations and these brainstorming sessions, if you will, of, you know, all the things that I was going, you know, and really spending so much time and energy on searching for on the internet and trying to find resources and support systems and all these things that really should be at your fingertips when, you know, a family is now, you know, forced to deal with this unfortunate, you know, nightmare and I'm spending all this time and energy on this one. I really should have been, you know, devoting it to my son and, you know, his, you know, recovery and healing and our recovery and healing because, you know, it affects the entire family. So that's when, you know, Macy and I started, you know, Voices of Change and really started, you know, to put together um, a strategic plan as far as, you know, what are the things that we didn't have readily available? And we know we're not the only family that, you know, has experienced this or will unfortunately experience this. Um, you know, so that's how Voices of Change came into fruition. Yeah. And what sort of work do you do with Voices of Change in terms of how do you raise awareness for um, justice for those children with disabilities who haven't been treated with the same courtesy and respect as those who do not have disabilities? So our initial our initial um, um, strategic plan is obviously to, you know, start really raising that awareness and, 
the advocacy for the disability population from for kids zero to 21. Um, that's our focus. And, you know, in doing that, you know, just talking about our own journey and all of the things that weren't available for us. And as we're doing that, we're also in the process of creating an education program um, for, you know, families, you know, guardians and parents and caregivers um, to know, you know, boundaries, you know, to how to teach boundaries, consent, um, and, you know, what to do if your child's been sexually abused. You know, ultimately, we're, we're teaching that prevention piece, you know, to reduce the risk of sexual abuse uh, and abuse in general, but um, abuse happening. But then on the other side of, you know, of it as well is how to and what to do if your child discloses or what signs to look for. Um, because, you know, a lot of times, you know, with the, the behaviors and things that these kids can exhibit, it's not always possible to really know. Like with my son, obviously all the behaviors he was exhibiting was because of all of the trauma he had encountered from, you know, having, you know, all the the experiences of being asked to undress and then have the, you know, the pictures and everything. So all of that was coming into motion for him and, you know, the trauma and the PTSD and all the anxiety, which he didn't know how to process. And he wasn't sure how to tell us what to, you know, what he went through. Um, and it wasn't until, unfortunately, my daughter disclosed and he had happened over here, one of the conversations that he felt safe to tell us. So as much as, you know, my daughter has even said, she's obviously not happy what happened to her, but in, you know, in the same breath, she said, she's almost glad it did because then it made, you know, Evan tell, you know, his second story. Yeah. Um, so it's almost bittersweet, you know, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. No. So, um, um, yeah, so, you know, the education piece, because that's huge, really, to really start spreading that awareness and get people talking, you know, it is an uncomfortable talk, topic and a hard topic, as you mentioned in the beginning, but, you know, because of that, and because of the silence, that's what's caused it to become an epidemic, and we need to really, you know, flip the switch on that and have it become, you know, a conversation in households, you know, so that kids know and kids know, you know, what boundaries are and, you know, what consent is and, you know, all these words um, so that they don't feel afraid um, or threatened. You know, my son was threatened if he told us by his perpetrator. So essentially that's what made, you know, him wait 14 months to tell us, um, you know, that he was a victim of abuse. Um, so, you know, really just trying to change people's thinking patterns and conversations um, to change this whole dynamic. Yeah, and with that then, I'm not sure if this next question is slightly tricky because obviously everybody's experience is slightly different in all sorts of ways. If there was somebody who would, you know, come to you, come to Voices of Change, who has had a similar experience happen to their child, what advice based on what you've gone through would you give to them in moving forward? 
if it's already happened to their child yes um i would you know my biggest advice to anybody is not to give up because that's what in my experience and in other families that i've spoke with since you know going through all this is that's what law enforcement wants because it's easier for them um taking on a case with a child with a disability is extremely challenging for them, understandably. Um, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't do it. And when a parent backs down, it just makes their lives easier. And the thing of it is, is that when these cases don't go reported, when they're not prosecuted, that just changes so many dynamics. And then, you know, people see those things and people say, well, I'm not going to report it because it's not, nothing's ever done about it. Mm. You know, and it just, from an outside looking in lens, you can then see why there's such a trickle effect and, you know, people not reporting it or people being afraid to report it or not knowing what to do. And so those statistics then remain high. And then the statistics of, you know, prosecuted cases or them even taking cases, you know, all those remain low and we need to change the traje trajectory of that. And we need to have those become higher um, because these kids deserve every bit of a voice and a chance as a neurotypical child does, you know, um, just because they have a disability doesn't mean that they're, you know, they weren't victimized. You know, it's, yeah. if anything, it's probably more so they, they're telling the truth, you know, and their case has more value, you know, than another child, you know, um, it's just, it's not fair. It's not fair how these kids are treated yeah, and it, it has to change. And with that, um, the last question was if it has already happened um, to, slightly slightly turn it uh, is the main focus you do in preventing it from happening in the first place any sort of abuse or misdemeanors would you consider the main factor to be education and getting children to talk as you mentioned earlier absolutely a absolutely lack of education i think is a big game changer for this you know i think the more we educate for prevention um, I do think that that's going to help reduce the risk significantly um, for children. And then the other part is I'm a firm believer now that, you know, when a child's given a diagnosis, you know, it, it's hard as it is, you know, that's the last thing as a parent you want to, you know, learn that now you have to, you know, learn about, you know, whatever the diagnosis is, you know, for me, it was fragile X and then autism, Sure. but you know, whatever that is, that's a hard pill to swallow as it is, but I really firmly believe that it's up to medical professionals to at that point say, you know, we understand that this is a lot to absorb and digest. However, you know, your child is in a higher category to be abused um, and you need to be educated on, you know, the abuse statistics, what to look for and, and those kind of things. So, you know, one of our initiatives is to have programs implemented with pediatricians and with, you know, uh, we have what's called early intervention in the States, um, which is a program for kids, kiddos that are zero through three before preschool. 
um, and their families so that, you know, the parents can start to be, become educated because, you know, a lot of times it's a caregiver that's abusing the child. Um, so, you know, you need to be able to have those conversations with the caregiver to say, you know, I am, you know, very educated on, you know, what abuse looks like, what sexual abuse looks like. Um, we were, you know, really paying attention to the signs, you know, so we're aware of, you know, any kind of differences in behaviors, you know, and things like that for our child so that they know you're on high alert. Um, and then they're not going to be able to get away with it. You know, if there was even, you know, a thought, you know, to it. Um, so I, I really think those two factors, you know, if we really change that around, that can at least start to reduce those numbers um, and really help start to help this population. Yeah, for real. And do you mind telling me about the Crucial Point Award that you received this year, if that's okay? Sure. Um, yeah, that I was not expecting that at all. Um, that was, um, you know, it's an award that it's given to individuals who have done, you know, are doing something in the community that, you know, have gone above and beyond. And it's something, you know, a award for people who are doing something unique. Um, and, you know, when I got the phone call that I had um, received it, I was quite honored, I'm very humbled by the award. Um, you know, and it's just because, you know, we're dealing with disabilities and there's not a lot of organizations out there that are dealing with disabilities. Um, so it's pretty cool. I was very, very honored to, to have been a recipient of that award this year. Yeah. And you also, um, forgive me, I forget the name, serve on a committee, I believe. Now, with that committee, how are you looking to make it easier to report crimes of this nature? And once they're reported, get them processed? Um, so, yes. Yeah, so I am on the Ohio Attorney General Committee for Crime Victims with Disabilities. Um, and, you know, that committee, you know, we work together. And, I mean, obviously, the whole goal is to you know, come together and collaborate as to how we can better suit, you know, the pop the disabled population um, when they've been victims of crime and make it better, make the experience better for them, make it fair, um, have that equality, um, no discrimination. Um, you know, so we're just really trying to make a difference um, in this population because it has, it's so underserved and it hasn't been recognized before um, and it needs to be. So there's really some key people uh, all across Ohio on this committee um, who serve on it. And, you know, we have different groups um, and conferences and just really trying to help spread awareness and, you know, help in any way we can. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I believe it does. Uh, no, thank you. And also, do you mind talking a bit about your book? Uh, we'll, we'll start with your first one, which has already been published, and then move on to the second. Your first book, you know, Finding Myself. Do you mind telling me why did you decide to write the book? Sure. So it's it's funny. I actually started writing the second one first, and when I, not, with no intention of writing the first one, actually, um, 
And when I started writing the second one, Finding My Voice, it is, the second one is all about being the mom of two kids who were sexually abused. And as I started writing it, I, what I realized was there was so much back history to our story. And I felt that there was such a need because of all these systemic issues in society that we don't discuss. I felt that I needed to take a few steps back and I felt that if I was going to use my voice to talk about child abuse and, you know, abuse in general, I wanted to share my story and really come to terms with my story because I'm a survivor of domestic abuse, as I indicated earlier. And, you know, for a long time, I, I, it's not that I hid it, but, you know, I lived in denial all those years I was married. I was married to a narcissist. He's an alcoholic, um, very controlling. And I denied it all those years I was married. And I have still seen a psychologist. Um, and, you know, I, I say that proudly, you know, that mental health is, you know, another issue in society that people are ashamed of. And I wish that stigma would change because it is such a problem. Um, and so many people battle it. Um, and there's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, but anyways, that being said, you know, the abuse was so bad, emotional, mental, verbal. And so I started writing, finding myself and, you know, I just talk about all the adversity I had overcome within those years, um, of being married and, you know, what it's like to survive and thrive, um, you know, and I wanted people to know that you can go through anything in life and it doesn't mean you're a, you know, a product of your past, that you can live your life with purpose and whichever way you want to live it, you know, you don't have to live it as a victim. And I think so many people just find themselves in that rut, you know, unintentionally. And I just really wanted to give somebody some encouragement and empower of empowerment and um, hopefully shed some hope to somebody maybe in a situation or situations like I have been in, in my past. Um, so that's what that first book is about. Um, just me overcoming quite a few, quite a few things that I've gone through in my life and, you know, getting to the point where, you know, I didn't think I could go on and, you know, um, but I did and I am, and, um, you know, you just keep going. Um, so that's, that's what book one's all about. Yeah. And given the things that have happened both to you and your children and the adversity you've faced, what methods or techniques do you use nowadays to stay on top of your mental health and well-being? Um, you, well, you know, seeing a psychologist once a week, um, you know, and the one thing I can say to anybody listening is you have to have a good rapport with that individual and you have to be able to trust them. And if you don't, you're not going to be helping yourself. Um, and that's crucial. Um, I've been seeing the same person for, gosh, quite a few years now. And I mean, she has helped me tremendously. 
Um, so that's the one thing I do. Um, you know, taking time for myself now, which is something that took me a long time to figure out because I used to think it was so selfish. Um, you know, I'm, I'm one of those moms that, you know, everything is about my kids and that's great. But what I didn't realize was that if I'm not, if I'm not at my best, then I'm no good for them. And it took me a long time to realize that because it was like, no, everything, my, my world revolves around them. And, you know, I'd feel guilty if, you know, I would go and do anything that, you know, wasn't pertaining to them. And so I'm doing that now for myself. Um, and that's okay. You know, I moved past that guilt because, you know, it's, it's small things. I'm not, you know, doing huge things, you know, but small things. Um, so that's another thing. And really just learning to like who you are and not worry about what other people think. I think that's the biggest thing any of us can do for ourselves. And I think we're also hard on ourselves. And I wish I would have learned that a long time ago. Um, wish it wouldn't have taken me 48 years, but it did. Um, and, um, and I think just really learning to not have to have everything done now. That was something else I've really had to learn how to do. I mean, you know, it's, I'm juggling, you know, owning a, you know, a foundation and being a mom and being a wife and, you know, we have a house and, you know, all these things and you, you juggle all of this and we all do. Um, and it's really just finding that balance and knowing when to say, okay, this is all, all I can give of this to this certain thing for the day. And knowing, you know, saying it's okay that I'm walking away from this for the day, like, because mentally I can't handle anymore. Um, and I think if we all learn to do that and you, you know, you take the piece of the pie and then break it up into whatever, how many, you know, eighth of a piece or whatever for each thing. And then when you're done with that and you just say, you know what, it's okay now, I, I'm okay now. Um, so those are kind of like some things that I've, I've just learned you know, as coping mechanisms to really help myself. Yeah, I see. And coming towards the end of the conversation, Nicole, the question that I would like to pose to you with Voices of Change, with all of the work that you have done and that you are doing, what would you say your ultimate mission is and what would you like to achieve going forward? Um, well, I mean, the, the ultimate our ultimate mission is to, you know, significantly reduce the risk for sexual abuse. Um, you know, currently, you know, we are operating nationally. Um, we're doing all of our pilot projects in Ohio. Um, we would like to be international one day. Um, you know, and I don't think that that's unrealistic um, as far as a goal, but, you know, partnering with, you know, bigger um, nonprofit organizations and organizations with like missions to, you know, be able to really, you know, help more of the communities at large, you know, so that we're really getting our points across and our mission and our, our work across so that we're helping as many families as we can early enough so that we can really combat this epidemic and help as many people as we can and as families as we can. 
where can we find out more of you and what you do online or on social media, Nicole? So our website is www.voicesofchange2018.org. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest, and LinkedIn. And the handle is at Voices of Change 2018 for all of them. And I can be reached via email and it's N for Nicole and then Mooring, M-O-E-H-R-I-N-G at voicesofchange2018.com. Excellent. Well, Nicole, can I say firstly, a huge thank you for coming on today. I've really appreciated getting to hear about your story, the work you're doing, and I've appreciated your time. And also congratulations. Uh, I think the work that you've been doing will provide so much value to a lot of people. And it takes some serious courage and resilience to do what you've done and to do what you're doing. So hats off to you, keep up the good work and yeah, all the very best for the future. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time and for having me as a guest today.